Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the TCT Podcast. I'm Head of Content Daniel O'Connor, and during the TCT show this year, I had the chance to sit down with two industry greats, who, that very night during the TCT Awards, would be joining the illustrious TCT Hall of Fame. In the panel session on the main stage at TCT Show Conference, Greg Morris and Professor Ellie Sachs discuss their remarkable pasts and how their knowledge is helping to shape the future of manufacturing. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Duncan. As you mentioned, I'm Head of Content at TCT Group, Daniel O'Connor. And I've been delighted, I'm delighted to have these uh, gentlemen join me on stage today. Each of our inductees was put forward uh, by our Experts Advisory Board, and then they were nominated by the general public, which I think is a real belt and braces validation of their impact on the industry. Ahead of the announcements, the TCT editorial team and I, which is Laura Griffiths and Sam Davis, who's sitting over there, we got together and we did a podcast, and we talked about our favorite facts about each nominee for the TCT Hall of Fame. One of our inductees behind me coined the term three-dimensional printing, and the other brought the first ever metal 3D printing process to the United States. So what I'd like you to do, gentlemen, is just introduce yourselves uh, by way of explaining that fact a little bit more, putting a little bit more flesh on the bones for that fact. Sure. Um, well, good morning. I'm Greg Morris, and uh, my background was, uh, along with two other partners, my brother Wendell and a mutual friend, Bill Nowak, starting Morris Technologies back in 1994. Uh, we were a service provider uh, all the way through our history. Uh, the short of it is that we started with stereolithography, got involved in other services uh, and, and uh, other uh, additive technologies. But really the game for us changed in 03 when we brought over to North America the first additive metal machine, which was an EOS DMLS uh, 250, M250. So, uh, we brought that machine over. We thought, uh, we thought we were going to be really smart and have a bunch of uh, mold-making applications to injection, uh, make quick molds for injection molding and maybe make a few parts. And uh, we were, of course, dead wrong. <laughs> there was a lot more demand for direct parts than there were for mold inserts in North America at that time. So uh, over the course of time, we continued to reinvest in the technology, uh, getting more machines, better machines, better materials and figuring out how to run these machines and, and create a bunch of different types of geometry, probably heavily aimed at the aerospace and the medical markets. But in the end, uh, we started working with one of our customers in Cincinnati, right next door to us, GE Aviation, worked on something called the fuel nozzle, which many of you probably have heard that story ad nauseum at this point. But uh, we worked on making the fuel nozzle for them, and eventually that led to GE's acquisition of our two companies, Morris Technologies and our sister company, Rapid Quality Manufacturing. Um, and that happened in late November of 2012. So uh, for the past five years, I worked for GE and then just recently uh, uh, decided to uh, take a break and uh, so spend a little bit more time with my family. So that's where I am today. Thanks very much, Greg. Sure. Hi, my name is Ellie Sachs. Uh, full name is Emmanuel gone by LA for since I can remember. I, I, uh, I started in uh, 3D printing in the 80s, so uh, I, I was in the, uh, the first guard, uh, and uh, I, uh, I happened to see a, uh, a beta site of uh, uh, a 3D systems early stereolithography stereo uh, machine, and uh, uh, that's when I decided to uh, 
to jump in. And uh, so uh, together with colleagues at MIT, I worked on uh, 3D printing for uh, 12 or 13 years. Uh, a number of companies were spun off out of our work uh, at MIT. Uh, I, uh, I then switched uh, for uh, about 10 years to photovoltaics, solar cells. Uh, actually, a field I had been in uh, also before uh, 3D printing. Uh, worked in that and uh, came back to 3D printing uh, in the form of desktop metal uh, about three years ago. Our, our previous keynote from Dave Burns was on the, um, the thrills and chills for startups and uh, getting started. In the early days of 3D printing, when you first invented it, there must have been some thrills, some chills. Can you just tell me about a time when perhaps things didn't go as right well as you did hoped and what you learned from that failure? Uh, we'll start with you, Ellie. Sure. Well, nothing ever went wrong, of course. Uh, uh, never, hardly ever, uh, or all the time. Uh, so uh, I, I have uh, uh, a couple stories. I, let me share one and, and, and then uh, uh, hear one from you, Greg. Uh, the, uh, uh, our strategy at MIT uh, uh, in the early days of MinderJet, which, by the way, uh, we called three-dimensional printing. Uh, our first patent was called three-dimensional printing techniques, and, and that was the name of the project. Uh, <clears throat> uh, our strategy was to license by application, by field of use. And that was because we were exploring so many different applications uh, in the beginning uh, that uh, we thought that was the best way to, to move forward. Uh, <clears throat> and it, it very well uh, might have been. Who knows? You never know, you never know how the alternative would have worked out. But one of the licensees was for medical applications. So I think we were the first uh, group in 3D printing to explore medical applications. Uh, a couple of my colleagues were uh, very well versed uh, in that field, uh, including in tissue engineering. And uh, uh, so, uh, so one of the licensees uh, was uh, for medical applications. And it was actually to a large, uh, very large pharmaceutical uh, company, the license. Uh, so we were really excited about that. And uh, it was to their uh, entrepreneurial arm. Uh, so uh, their, their intent was to do a startup. Uh, so, so the idea that you have a startup backed by one of the large, uh, 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 both pharmaceutical and medical device companies uh, was really exciting. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, but uh, uh, as, as Dave Burns said earlier, uh, uh, choosing the right people is, uh, well, he put that number two in reasons uh, that uh, companies, startups have problems. Uh, I, I would put it as number one, uh, two, and three. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it, it isn't just choosing the right people, but just people. And uh, unfortunately, uh, this, uh, by the choice in this case of a CEO made by this uh, licensee, uh, that company struggled uh, uh, mightily. Uh, a remnant remained and came back to life, but uh, it was an enormous potential uh, that was not realized and very, very early in the game. And yourself, Greg, was the uh, uh, a time when things geez. went wrong? Yeah. Gee, I, I, if I start twitching, you know, <laughs> it's going to bring back memories of all the things. Now, I, we had a ton of things that, uh, some small, some big, some medium that went wrong, and some humorous, I guess, uh, didn't seem so funny at the time. 
I'll just give you two examples. One was, uh, we, as I mentioned before, we started with stereolithography um, as the uh, first rapid prototyping at the time technology. And uh, we, we realized that uh, we had a 250, so our build envelope was uh, that 10-inch cube. And we realized, uh, as a business, we needed bigger parts. And so, at the time, uh, we were, uh, as a startup, we didn't actually do what Dave pointed out, going out for financing and getting seed capital that way. We actually did, uh, we had one of the items, which was the family. <laughs> so my parents very generously allowed us to borrow some money to start up. So we were, we were on a very, very tight budget. So we couldn't afford, at the time, to go to 3D Systems and buy the SLA 500, which was the step up. That was going to give us the, the bigger build envelope. So to get over that, we decided, well, well, we'll get a machine that's an additive machine, but we'll get one that's a lot less cost. And that happened to be, for those of you who have heard of it, uh, the LOM technology, Laminated Object Manufacturing. <laughs> and um, I, you know, I think as a decision point to get into larger parts, it was good. But uh, there are a lot of differences between LOM and SLA. So SLA is a polymer-based, laser-based process um, with a low-power laser, as many of you know, that's uh, photo-curing the material. The LOM process took, in essence, butcher paper with a glue on one end, uh, back side of it. So you put this big roll of paper onto the machine and you have a build envelope and the paper goes across the, uh, the build envelope and then it has a laser that comes down to uh, cut the shape of that particular uh, layer and then cross-hatch to the little cubes the rest of the, uh, rest of the uh, platform area. The platform drops, new paper comes across, a heated roller goes across and heats that paper and glues it to the layer below it and the process repeats. So all that sounds pretty good, but uh, paper, lasers, and heated rollers don't always <laughs> mix and match. <laughs> And uh, there were a few times that we, uh, that we had some fires in the machine. One time in particular, uh, it was like 3 in the morning. Back then, I had a little pager when the machine was raising its hand saying help. So you know, I get up at 3 in the morning. I was the guy on call. I go into the office, and sure enough, that machine had done a number. It actually had not completely burned up, but it, it did a pretty good job, set off the fire alarms and set off some of the, the uh, systems. We had a third shift guy that was there already. He had... Uh, taken one of those chemical extinguishers to put out the fire, and of course that left an incredible mess through the whole facility. So that was, that was an ugly moment, um, but um, we still survived and got over it. I think I've heard that even when they were working those machines, they still smelt like fire. Yeah, they, they did. Like yeah, yeah. So quite often we'd have, uh, it was Nottingham University, I think they had a security guard who would go around the premises, <laughs> and he smelt burning, so we just shut the whole thing off. It was the middle of a 12-hour build or something like that. Yep. Um, the 3D printing industry is or the additive manufacturing industry has moved on from being purely about rapid prototyping. Uh, as the OEMs they look to gain a foothold in the, what some call the $12 trillion manufacturing industry. Um, you've both played a part in that process. Uh, Ellie, what was it that made you want to, design, to develop a 3D printer using an engineering grade, uh, an engineering grade material as opposed to, say, just fit and form? Yeah. So uh, I, I had uh, built things as a kid uh, uh, from as long as I uh, could remember. And uh, uh, in, in college, I fell in love with uh, manufacturing. And I actually taught uh, uh, as a teaching assistant the manufacturing class, and I taught machining. Uh, worked in a machine shop a couple summers. 
so, uh, so uh, as I mentioned, I saw a beta site of, uh, of sterile lithography, and uh, I just instantly uh, recognized the potential because I knew how hard it was to uh, make mechanical prototypes and how long it took. Uh, I, I was also uh, involved at that time uh, at, as a research project at MIT in uh, process control for making integrated circuits. Uh, so those are, of course, also built in layers, uh, and that's inherent uh, in that technology. So, uh, so the, the correspondence was uh, very clear between building mechanical parts in layers and building uh, uh, microelectronics parts. Uh, so, uh, but having, having built, uh, uh, built stuff, uh, I wanted to build in uh, what I called real materials. Uh, I, you have to keep in mind that the photopolymers at that time were early uh, acrylate, acrylic-based. Uh, they were dimensionally unstable. They were very brittle. Uh, so very limited material properties. So I set out to, uh, to work in metals uh, especially, and also in ceramics. And uh, uh, because I was thinking about manufacturing all the time, uh, I set out to uh, uh, come up with, uh, with a technology that uh, could grow into manufacturing. So that was, that was uh, an express uh, goal right from the beginning, uh, was to, to uh, come up with an idea that might have legs uh, going forward, not just for prototypes, uh, but for manufacturing. Uh, so uh, I thought that would happen uh, right around the corner, <laughs> of course. Uh, it's uh, two and a half, three decades later, uh, but it is happening now, and that's super exciting. And for you, Greg, as a long-term user of the technology, when did you realize that actually, you know, these parts, um, these forms, we could make them for production purposes or for manufacturing purposes? Yeah, I can actually, uh, so, you know, we, we really had our specialty uh, that we carved out uh, in the metals. Um, and again, as I said, that happened in, initially, it started in 03. But, you know, those early alloys that we worked with, they were uh, direct metal, which was a bronze-based alloy. It was the direct steel and direct steel H20. And they were good. And in fact, I, you know, I still, to this day, remember, I, I was first introduced to that technology at Procter & Gamble, one of the customers of ours. I was over there for a sales meeting and met with this guy who was leading that department. And he said, oh, do you have a second? I'm like, sure. And he comes out with these bold inserts and he showed me them. Uh, they're made out of direct metal, uh, so the bronze-based alloy. And, and it was better detail resolution than anything I had seen up to that point in the industry. So that's why we invested. We ultimately researched, invested, and brought, as I said, the technology over. But what we quickly found was that the bronze-based alloy for parts, for direct parts, and the steel and the uh, H20 steel, um, direct steel H20, was a, uh, they were good, but the problems they had were the uh, mechanical properties weren't fantastic. We had uh, corrosion issues with the steels, low-carbon steels. We had a lot of stress cracking issues in the uh, DMLS machines because we were using lasers, at that time a CO2 laser, et cetera. So I really pinpoint the, the huge shift in what happened to 2005. So in 05, uh, as I mentioned before, GE was one of our uh, primary customers and we were working with them uh, pretty closely. Uh, two individuals in particular, uh, one in their test facilities engineering, one in the combustion group. And they kept prodding us to come up with a better material than the direct metal and the H20 and the, and the direct steel for the reasons I outlined. 
So uh, we in turn kept prodding EOS and saying, hey, uh, we need something better. Do you have a nickel-based alloy, an Inconel, or something of that nature? Uh, they had been working on uh, an alloy called cobalt chromium, and that ultimately was uh, through a, a variety of different uh, negotiations and a little bit of arm twisting perhaps, we became the pilot customer in North America, required a new machine that had the fiber laser versus the CO2 laser. So we bought the 270, we put in the cobalt chrome uh, material, and it was not overnight. It probably was about a year, two years in of lots of testing and lots of producing a part, sending it to the GEs of the world and getting feedback about, well, it didn't turn back into powder and it uh, didn't corrode. And what we found actually over time is that our low cycle fatigue and our high cycle fatigue and our ultimate, ultimate tensile strengths and you know, the, uh, all these mechanical properties that are so critical to high-end applications like aerospace or even medical implants, uh, the material looked very much like it was going to be something that would be highly uh, useful. So, you know, that was just a, a pivotal moment uh, in our company and probably overall for the industry is to see the, uh, to see the maturation of the technologies go from a cobalt chrome, highly useful material, and then, of course, now we see many, many different materials, uh, nickel-based and stainless steels and all kinds of stuff. But uh, that was really the beginning of the belief that this technology could not just act as a prototyping technology, but we were crossing over the line into it's a production-capable uh, technology. And, uh, of course, it's taken years still to get the speeds up, the costs down, uh, the quality systems there. Uh, but we are on the precipice, if not even uh, over that at this point for some specific products. But for us... I'd say it was 05 really was the beginning, and over the corresponding two years, uh, the feedback that kept coming back really uh, gave us the green light that this was gonna be something uh, we hoped pretty revolutionary. And, and on that topic of materials, Ellie, uh, at the moment with desktop metal, would you say that um, the metal injection molding industry has really changed the game for you and that technology? I'm sorry, could you repeat Would that? you suggest that the metal injection molding technology and the powders that we're seeing now, and the use of it has really affected um, desktop metals oh, you know, yes, growth. Very much so. Uh, in, in, in fact, uh, uh, back uh, during those 12, 13 years at MIT, we started to work with the fine powders from the metal injection molding industry. Uh, uh, and we made some tiny little parts that we were very proud of, but, uh, but uh, uh, the, there were several problems at that time. And one was that the MIM metal injection molding industry was really small and uh, uh, not of the highest reputation. Uh, so uh, people would, if, if you were thinking about having a part made by MIM, people would uh, invariably interpret that as an act of desperation. Uh, and that's probably true uh, at that time. Uh, so it was tiny industry, uh, not good reputation. Powders were very, very expensive. Uh, so when I went out to try and convince people that this was a, a good path, uh, that was uh, one of the problems that I encountered. So that's been a huge change uh, driven uh, in part by applications in electronics, consumer electronics, but lots of other fields as well. So people no longer have that reaction. So that's been a very important thing. It's but another important uh, aspect has, has been the progress made in inkjet printing. So, uh, so, so back uh, 
when uh, when we were uh, doing a down select between you know in the, in the 80s between a couple of well about a dozen ideas we cooked up uh, 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 one of the uh, arguments that uh, that I I encountered I guess this is after we made the down select is people would say well look at look at the uh, the the desktop publishing uh, the printer business uh, inkjet's losing they would say uh, lasers winning you've picked the wrong horse and uh, and and my response uh, well at least my response in my own head was uh, I, I had visited lots of inkjet uh, printhead companies uh, being a, a professor uh, they, they tend to be just a little bit more open so they were uh, sharing with me their visions and you know sort of what was in the back room and I could s get a sense of what was coming so Basically, I was pacing, uh, placing a bet that while uh, uh, Inkjet was probably losing at this moment, that was not necessarily what was going to happen in the long run. So, uh, uh, so now there, there are quite a number of suppliers of, of uh, a very impressive Inkjet technology. So that's helped as well. I'd just like to move on to design for additive manufacturing. It now has its own acronym. We see DFAM written down a lot these days, which shows that we've made some progress. Uh, but in the early days, Greg, when the people were coming to you as a service provider, what was the design for additive manufacturing capabilities like? How many times did you have to go back and feed yourself, Ellie? When did it become apparent that we needed to change the way we think about design? Yeah, I, so... Uh, you know, I would I would call it almost non-existent back in that 2005, if you will, time frame for quite a while. I mean, I, I think we, you know, we were learning um, as a company that had the technologies internally. So you can only imagine uh, how difficult it would be for for somebody in an OEM that wanted that we would approach and say, "Hey, this is a great technology. Uh, you ought to think about." creating better designs um, or, uh, you know, combining components into one part. So, you know, we had to do a lot of uh, evangelizing out there and, and trying to go back to the basics with customers about why they should even consider additive. I mean, design was the number one item you had to get over as a hurdle. Because if you just tried to make typically the part that they had designed for traditional manufacturing technologies, it probably wasn't going to be a good part to make an additive. I mean, we, we had our share of parts that we would say, all right, you know, they were insistent upon having it grown additively, and we'd try it, and uh, of course, you know, we'd have a lot of problems on the build because we had thick sections and, you know, areas on the platform that would pull up and all kinds of issues. So, you know, it really took a lot of arm twisting sometimes and convincing and just time to get people to change their point of reference for how they should be treating uh, design and additive and I think now, uh, even today, I would tell you that very few OEMs uh, and very few companies out there have a, a solid, deep understanding of designing uh, for additive. And, and when I say that, I'm not necessarily talking about the, the actual design and structure of it, but the design and the mechanical properties combined and, and what does that all mean? You know, back to, you know, I'll use GE as an example. Um, you know, on their catalyst engine, which uh, used to be called the advanced turboprop, they went from 855 traditionally manufactured components down to 12 additive. So they combined 855 traditional pieces to make 12 grown parts. 
So that's a, that doesn't just happen overnight. That happened because uh, there was enough time for the GE designers and engineers to work with the technology, started with the fuel nozzle and graduated up into something bigger and better. And uh, you know, goodness knows, I, I, I suspect they have many, many more parts now that are gonna be working their way into the engines of the future where uh, you know, they, they've, they've really leveraged that design element. But it wasn't easy, it isn't easy, and uh, although I think we're starting to see the momentum build, uh, we're still probably a long way from companies fully grasping and having that. The, the other thing I'd say that prevents some of that happening is that to do 855 to 12, you have to think on a system level, not a part level. So that's super important because a lot of companies are structurally not set up to be able to, to have a system level organization. Um, they have they very siloed in their organization. So in automotive, you might have you know, the drivetrain people and the drivetrain people focus on drivetrain. They don't necessarily concern themselves with other parts of the, of the car. And uh, you really need to have that full view in order to be most efficiently designing for additive. Otherwise, you won't reach the full potential. And what about yourself, Ellie? What was it like when uh, your earliest printers, what was it like with the early designers that were using your technology? I'm sorry, what's it like? What was it like with the, um, the earliest of your printers, and what was it like when oh. the uh, designers were, print, were sure. manufacturing for your technology? Yeah. So, uh, the, 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 uh, if, you, if you think about uh, uh, in the early days, late 80s through the 90s, uh, making an argument to take advantage of the geometric complexity, uh, especially the ability to do internal geometry, uh, you really had to... Uh, you had to find applications uh, where you could argue that you could do it in production. At least that's the route that we took. Uh, so, uh, so you know, on the one hand, we were we were saying that our inkjet technology uh, could, in the future, do uh, high-rate uh, uh, production. But in fact, we were not doing that at that time. Uh, yet, so we had to look for applications which were very high value and made in sufficiently small uh, numbers, so similar to, to I think, so, uh, the aerospace uh, area. So, for example, uh, we did uh, some work in uh, orthopedic uh, uh, castings, uh, uh, specifically uh, knee uh, castings on the bony ingrowth uh, surfaces. Uh, and, and that work was actually done through casting. So, uh, so our, our, our first application, in fact, for 3D printing, what we call uh, now called binder jet, was to print ceramic molds into which you poured metal to make a casting. And uh, so that's, that's the route that we were following. So we printed molds that uh, would be uh, extremely difficult uh, to make by other means. And uh, we were working with uh, J and J Johnson Johnson Orthopedic, and they uh, cast uh, these very intricate bony ingrowth surfaces. Did did rabbit studies. Results were really good. Uh, unfortunately, that for a variety of reasons that did not get commercialized on that path. Uh, but uh, you can see examples of that in in uh, direct metal uh, now out in the hall. For uh, so. Uh, uh, hip balls, for example. So, uh, so you had to look for these very specific applications uh, uh, in order to make that argument. We also looked at uh, using uh, in uh, binder jet. You can 
uh, print material, not just a polymer binder, but also material through the, through the inkjet nozzles. So we looked at uh, making what are called gradient index lenses, uh, where uh, the lens refracts light not uh, because of the, the curvature of the surface of the lens. Uh, it's, a, it's a flat slab, but it reflect, refracts light uh, because the index is different from uh, one place to another. So we actually made some little uh, GRIN, so-called gradient index lenses, uh, uh, as a proof of concept. Uh, but the, at that point, the economics just uh, wasn't there. Uh, but you very much had to, had, uh, or at least our perception was that you had to be very, very targeted. Uh, I, in that project, I worked uh, with other colleagues at MIT who were experts in CAD. Uh, so we developed some, uh, some early uh, CAD add-ons in order to support the local uh, composition control. So there, there, it was very attractive, right? but uh, very hard to really get a foothold. When we, um, when you and I talked on the phone for the uh, for the TCT podcast, you um, mentioned that there was a sort of happy coincidence in when you were making these ceramic molds that the material happened to be porous and that made it that made it very sensible to use for that uh, application. Can you just elaborate a little more on that? Sure. Yes. Well, so uh, so I had um, uh, uh, bef before uh, uh, getting started on three uh, D printing. Uh, uh, I had visited, uh, uh, well, uh, every, every factory uh, that I could, <laughs> basically, that I had time to and that let me in. So uh, I had visited several uh, investment uh, casting uh, uh, houses and uh, automotive uh, engine block casting. Uh, so, uh, so I had in the back of my mind that uh, those, it, it, because, and I remember because it was a surprise to me that those molds, those ceramic molds that you pour molten metal into are porous. And uh, so you might say, well, why doesn't the liquid metal just pour through? And the answer is because it doesn't wet the ceramic. So it's not like a sponge, uh, but, but rather it's as if that mold were made of Teflon powder and you were pouring metal in, uh, water in it would just stay in there and not pour out. So I had that in the back of my mind, and, and then when we look, looked at our list of ideas and we saw this uh, idea of inkjet print into a powder bed, uh, I realized that uh, uh, it was going to be a, a, another challenge to uh, consolidate the part, that is, densify the part. We were gonna make out of the machine a porous part, uh, so if we wanted direct metal, we would have to either infiltrate or center, uh, which I, I, I was pretty sure we could do, but I was looking for an application that didn't require that. And so, so here was a natural marriage to print ceramic, uh, have it come out of the machine as porous, and that's exactly what you wanted for metal casting. So that was actually, it was that recognition that, uh, that led me to choose uh, inkjet printing in, into powder from the list of, uh, of crazy ideas that we had. Uh, so it turned out, turned out to be a, a fortuitous uh, marriage. And that's, a, um, that's an application that most um, businesses and manufacturing companies in the UK could use. Um, what do you think, and I'll ask you this question, Greg, what do you think the current barriers for small to medium enterprises to manufacture with additive 
Is it the materials, the technology itself, the ancillary equipment, all of the above, or what do you think? Yeah, I, well, the easy answer is it's all the above, but, uh, you know, the, I think, I think I'd actually go even beyond just, you know, small companies and, and job shops, and I would expand that out to almost any company, is there's still a lot of barriers. Uh, things are clearly moving in, in the right direction, and, and progress gets made every month and every year, and I think some of these obstacles are overcome, but... Uh, look, I mean, the journey's difficult to get into production with these things. Now, if you're, you know, you, so you have to kind of look and say, are we talking about a prototyping type application, which is a little lower bar, if you will, for complexity, to, or the production opportunities, where I think a lot of people want to get to, and for obvious reasons, the volumes are higher, uh, the dollars are higher. But for the production technologies, I mean, uh, you look at the machines today. I mean, they're very expensive. So for a small shop, yeah, I can't, you know, it was expensive when we were buying machines. I, I mean, we, we'd be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars for every machine that we would buy that would have a, that 10 by 10 envelope, basically, in the metals. Um, you know, now we've got machines that are much bigger. And these are, uh, you know, obviously, as many know, over a million dollars. And some of these machines coming out are multi-million dollar machines at least on the laser-based and on the EBM-based, okay? Um, different story, clearly, for binder jet and for some of the other modalities. But uh, so that, that's a challenge. I think, um, you know, the, the technology itself is, has come a long way. But look, let's be honest, there's still issues on the technology side with the machines as well. Um, and again, I'm focused on laser and EBM. Um, I'm sure there are issues on all the other modalities as well. But... Uh, there's a learning curve, and, uh, you know, are they ready for that, uh, like Dave was saying, 24 hours, 365 days a year type operation? And, you know, I think some and certain applications can do that. And clearly, uh, you know, I look at GE and what they're doing for their fuel nozzle production and some other parts, and it seems like they've got that kind of a uh, production going. And so I, I'd say it's possible, but, you know, that's that didn't happen without a lot of people, a lot of expertise, and uh, frankly, a lot of modification and things that the GE world brought to those machines and those processes. So look, there's a lot of complexity to get there. Um, the certifications, uh, depending on what industry you're going to be in, if you're selling parts to, uh, again, the aviation, aerospace, or medical markets, you have to have the right certifications, not just talking getting your ISO AS9100 or 1345 plaque, you know, it goes much, much deeper. And more than likely, if you're working with an OEM like a GE, you're probably having to conform to their quality systems and having to prove what your systems are under control, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, a lot of barriers, um, but also uh, as everybody at this conference and as Dave was just saying before, and I think all of us would agree, the uh, potential is quite large. And for you, Ali, what do you think the current barriers are? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, when, you're, when you're moving from uh, prototypes to uh, production, uh, reliability uh, uh, becomes number one uh, concern uh, very quickly. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, that's still uh, somewhat of an issue, obviously less, less than it used to be. Uh, I, I think at the at the core, it's a it's a question of rate and cost uh, that uh, that constitute the primary barriers. So, uh, if you if you look at uh, uh, you know, it, it, it was interesting uh, uh, in in the in the eighties, uh, it seemed that uh, 
uh, CNC machining, computer numerically controlled machining, had uh, taken a pause in development. And it, it had advanced, it was uh, uh, originally developed in the 50s, and it advanced rapidly, but then it seemed to be taking a pause. And so I think uh, some of us who were early in, in the field, uh, at least I, I was a little bit fooled by that, I have to admit. And uh, uh, it, it, maybe it was just a natural pause and that progress would have resumed. Maybe that progress was a little bit kicked uh, by uh, 3D printing uh, as a competitive threat. Uh, uh, who knows? But, uh, but CNC machining has come a long way. It's quite amazing, right? So, uh, so, so at least in the, in the job shop context, that's what you're competing with. Uh, and and so, uh, so the costs have come way down, uh, tooling life has gone way up, uh, precision has gone up. Uh, so, uh, so I think that the, the cost and throughput are, are really substantial barriers. And, and you know, I, I think we see progress on that. Uh, but uh, but that, that is, uh, that's my thought about what the primary Yeah, if I, if I kind of jump on that real quick, I, I totally agree with you. I think cost is a huge problem because uh, it really limits the, the number of parts that you can right. consider to be putting into uh, an additive machine. And, and in the end, uh, as much as everybody loves additive technologies uh, for the sexiness of it, uh, it, it will probably come down in most OEMs to the cost of the component right. um, before anything else. But that being said, I, I think uh, cost can be achieved uh, in a lot of ways, I'm, and, and I'm sure you would agree with this, that you, know, you can achieve that cost uh, target by brilliant design. And, right. and if you can do that combination of taking multiple parts down to one, you know, that's a huge cost savings. Uh, and, and I don't, you know, I really haven't seen uh, any presentation or any published numbers that would really go deep into that cost savings on the supply chain, but it, it has got to be huge because you have less inventory in the supply chain, you have a lot less suppliers, you have a lot less engineers and designers up front, you have less assembly time, um, you know, and on and on. So if you, if you take those whether it's 10 parts or 300 or whatever, down to one part, that's a huge cost savings throughout the supply chain, not just that direct part. And I think that's where today additive plays very strongly, unless you have some material combination that, that gets you something that um, you, know, you can't easily do in the traditional manufacturing. But, but to, to be clear, um, from my perspective, you know, you talked about a 12 trillion total global manufacturing output number before, and you know, depending on how you come up with that number, 12, 15, 17, doesn't matter. It's a huge number. Mm. And, and today, our, our little industry is uh, something like 0.03% of, of that number. So if our little industry could just capture half a percent, you're talking you know, tens of billions of dollars, probably somewhere in that 80 to 100 billion dollars in, in five to 10 years. And I, I think that's achievable by these specialized applications where you can combine parts and that'll get some breathing room for some of the technologies like a, a desktop metal admittedly, which that's a, a, you know, a fantastic technology that can whip things out very quickly um, and, and has much higher speeds. And I think we'll see those technologies mature uh, as we will the laser and the electron beam and all additive modalities to a point where they, they get closer to that CNC uh, cost point. I mean, I equal it, but at least I think that circle of applications grows over time. 
Yeah, I, 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 totally, I totally agree. Uh, the, the point about uh, huge opportunities for growth uh, is absolutely, absolutely correct. And I think, I think all of this is, uh, uh, plays out in a virtuous cycle. Yep. Uh, so you make an advance in uh, feature size or in production rate, and now that enables uh, a, a new set of applications, and then that advance combined with this advance enables another set and another set and another set. So, so I, I think uh, a lot of exciting things will happen over the next five or ten years. Do you think there's any um, kind of like cultural issues in terms of uh, cultural business issues when it comes to additive? So, for instance, uh, people who see it as this, you know, novel technology that nobody cares about and they've used it once before and they won't go back to it now because it was building trinkets and Yoda heads. Do you think there's any that we've got to go any way to change that? I, you know, I, I, I think that's changing. I mean, I think that could have been the case, but look, you've got too many convincing case studies out there at this point. Um, so, it, you know, whether you're making shoes out of your carbon, you know, three carbon uh, machine or you're making uh, fuel nozzles or LPT blades or whatever you're doing, uh, these things are making it into the real world. So, I, you know, I, I think... Um, I have not heard people, uh, executives or, or engineering departments, uh, discounting additive at this point. I think it has made it to the to the level of people understand it can be very disruptive. I think the question is more where is it going to be disruptive, and is it disruptive in my products? Um, you, you know, for. Folks like myself and, and a lot of others here, I mean, you, you could make the argument, well, sure, you're making anything, additive's gonna have a big play, somehow, some way. Uh, will it make a play on the production side of things? You know, yes, sometimes that'll take longer, just due to certification, due to qualifications, you know, whatever the case. But I think that we've, at least my perception is, by and large, people don't look at it as a trinket-type technology anymore. I think they realize that, uh, in particular on the industrial systems and the industrial materials, that it's real and it's showing up in uh, real-life products, and not only real-life products, but real-life products that uh, have high liabilities associated with them, uh, such as aircraft engines and medical implants and, and other things that could be really ugly if uh, there was a problem or a recall. So uh, because of that, and, and knock on wood, we won't have a major problem um, that, that surfaces. But even then, I think we've, we've pressed it over to where uh, it's, it's been legitimized, and I think it's now back to that, how big a circle of applications do we get to? And that's a cost question, it's a maturity question for every company. But the culture of thinking of additive, to me, has, has shifted, and if it hasn't, shame on the company that hasn't gotten to that point yet. Would you, yep. would you agree with that, Ellie? Has the culture shifted away? Has the culture of additive manufacturing shifted towards where we want it to be, do you think? Uh, yes, I, I, I think I, I agree with everything uh, Greg said on, on that topic. I'll, I'll, I'll just, just add a, a, a from the educational uh, perspective, uh, it's uh, shifted uh, enormously. Um, uh, as someone who has an organic love for turning dials on a milling machine uh, or a lathe, uh, uh, I, I'm actually a little bit worried uh, about just how far it's, it's uh, shifted. 
because uh, a lot of young people think of, uh, when they think about manufacturing, they actually think first and sometimes only about 3D printing. Uh, so, uh, uh, but the, you know, the positive side of, of, of this, and I'm not just talking about in, in grade schools, which is happening. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, if, for example, in our uh, current, current version of the manufacturing class at, in mechanical engineering at MIT, uh, it's, uh, there's a, a shop component with, uh, fortunately, still a healthy dose of, of uh, machining and injection molding and other thing, uh, but uh, rows and rows of 3D printers. Uh, as well. So, uh, so these folks are just going to go out expecting this to be part of how they do things. And, and uh, so uh, as, as long as it's kept in the right balance, I think it's great. I think that's a great point and it's, it's something that is not often talked about. You're, I could not agree with you more uh, that if, if additive is your only tool in the toolbox, you're in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> and as much as we promote additive, right. uh, we absolutely, it, it's an additive's best interest to make sure it's used in the appropriate way, uh, which means more often, not, especially if you're in metals, you're, you, you better have CNC machines and you, or even manual machines, and you better be using traditional technologies, including castings and, and uh, you know, forgings and fabrications. Right. I mean, those aren't going to go away, not in our lifetimes and, and maybe not in a, any foreseeable future. But uh, that's a, it is a problem because everyone likes the sexy technology right. that come out. And, um, and, and there's also from the educator's point of view, not so much at the college level, but the, at the younger level, uh, at least, at least in, in the US, uh, shop class uh, went out of style and that was partly for safety concerns. Right, and so at least this is my my perception. And so, additive offers a way to bring in manufacturing uh, with with much reduced safety concerns. So it's a it's a very natural fit. Uh, so one of the things that always attracted me about manufacturing was that there's a very high barrier to entry for a new technology because you have to invariably you're competing against other ways to do it. Uh, some of which have been around literally for thousands of years. Metal casting, for example, about 4,000 years. Uh, so there's a very high barrier to entry, but once you're in, you're in for a very long time. And so uh, I think that will be true of 3D printing as a field. Uh, but, you know, uh, by, by, uh, in parallel, it will still be true of castings and forgings and stampings and, and the like. Yep. Uh, on that point about the future and about um, the youngsters using the technology today. There's a great deal of talks, particularly at shows like this, surrounding factories of the future, uh, smart manufacturing industry 4.0. What goes hand in hand with that, certainly in what the mainstream media is, a worry about jobs. Um, if, let's say, the factories do become smart, a part is designed generatively, uh, printed and post-processed automatically, what do you think is the jobs of the future of manufacturing are going to look like? I'll let you go first, Greg. Uh, actually, uh, Greg, could you go first? Uh, oh, I, yeah. a, a slight, a slight uh, I, I want to take it in a slightly different direction. Oh, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I actually don't get terribly worried about, I mean, I, I understand the, what you're asking, which is you've automated things and thus you've taken away uh, uh, somebody's job that was maybe more manually doing something. So, look, I, I, I 
I don't think that's going to happen. There's, there's uh, people a lot smarter than me and, and people have done more studies on this that could probably give you a lot of facts and figures. Mine's just an intuitive feel that I don't see it happening. I haven't seen it happening. Um, I'll, I'll use GE as an example. Uh, you know, they, they have this facility in Cincinnati. They have multiple facilities around the world, but the one I'm actually familiar with uh, the most is the Cincinnati facility. And uh, for every machine, every additive machine that they've put on the floor, it seems like there's a ton more people that are surrounding it. So, you know, you got designers, you got quality uh, people, you got machinists, um, you have purchasing and sourcing that's uh, helping with it. I mean, you, you, you have a whole organization. So I've actually seen the employment go skyrocketing over there. Uh, as they keep adding machines and you've got technicians and you've got people that are the engineers that are helping to, you know, figure out things on the machine. So I'd say that's one comment I'd make. And one last thing before I, you know, yep. before you want to jump in is uh, throughout history, you, you just cannot stop uh, innovation, you, you know, and it's, it's a fool's errand to try. And why should you? Because I think it has been proven time and again um, that innovation will take things in ways no one can predict today. And I think that's going to be true for additives. So I think it's really a, a bad argument maybe, or, or it's, a, it's, a, um, it, it's, it's almost more of a politically convenient discussion to say, you're going to take away jobs doing this. I would argue it's the reverse of that. And I would also point to, again, I haven't done the studies, but I would point to probably, if I thought about it long enough, hundreds of examples of where there was innovation and innovation actually uh, generated way more jobs than they ended up taking away. Even though there was a microcosm of jobs or you know micro area of jobs taken away, there were a lot more ultimately in the broader context that were created. And I, I think that's the case. So I, I look at, uh, I actually look at additive as being very, very positive. I'll speak for the U.S. Um, a lot of parents don't think of their telling their kids to go into manufacturing when they're in school. And I love the fact that additive is, is, a, is a sexy technology that actually starts to change that paradigm. And, and maybe we'll see parents say, hey, have you ever thought about getting involved in additive or getting involved in 3D printing, which in itself, which is manufacturing in a different uh, terminology. So, sorry, I went a little longer. I no, no, that, that was great. So, so I, 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 I'm often, not often, but I'm occasionally uh, uh, asked, uh, uh, how do you feel about working in 3D printing given that it's going to take jobs away? And, and, and I, I find that if, if they had asked, uh, how do you feel about working in an advanced manufacturing or manufacturing? Uh, where manufacturing jobs, uh, uh, at least in some places, are, are uh, uh, diminishing. Uh, that question I would understand. Why is focused on additive? I never understand. I try to explain to them that uh, it, this is part of uh, manufacturing, and uh, it's, it's, it's no more and no less of an issue for, uh, for 3D printing additive than it is uh, for any other aspect of manufacturing. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, so that, that, that's just, just one point. I, 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 um, I'm personally not, not quite as sanguine about the impact on society uh, of advances in manufacturing and, and uh, 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 or just in general about the question of what people are gonna do 50 years from now. Uh, um, I, I probably spend 
a few too many hours worrying about that, especially since there's nothing I can do about it. Uh, uh, but what, what, uh, what, I, what I do think uh, needs to change, and uh, so I split my time between desktop metal and MIT, and at MIT, uh, uh, I'm engaged in, uh, uh, with others uh, in pushing a boulder uphill, truly Sisyphusian challenge of uh, trying to reinvent how to teach engineering. And I think that in general, uh, we have to reinvent education because uh, education is for the most part not about people learning how to think, uh, which is what it needs to be. Uh, uh, because if you have to change careers, uh, then you need a whole different uh, skill set uh, about how to think uh, than you do if you were really being trained, which is what uh, our education was developed uh, 100 years ago to do, trained for a job that you were going to do for the rest of your life. So, uh, so, so to me, that's, that's the change that needs to happen to accommodate these other, other changes. Yeah, we're not... Um... We're not going to have people running around smashing up machines because they're worried about jobs, hopefully, like they did in the uh, when uh, the sewing machine first hit the Northwest. Hopefully, it would be uh, a bit different than that. I, well, I, I, my, my, uh, my, my grown uh, sons do accuse me in some areas of being a Luddite. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, so I don't know. <laughs> no, maybe. Um, I was at uh, IMTS a couple of weeks back, and I, um, I had this, like, feeling that I was in a couple of press conferences and I thought, we're still saying the same things that we were saying five years ago when I started in this industry. But then it was actually a visit to the GE stand, the GE additive stand, and I spoke to a, a, a colleague of yours, Greg at GE Aviation, and he started to tell me that five years ago there was a handful of um, developments that were for additive manufacturing, for the, particularly for the catalyst engine. And now there's hundreds in GE Aviation, and it's only been in short, four short years. Do you think that we're about to see an explosion of all of these applications? Is the next leap for fuel nozzle and the next thing's all coming in the next 12 to 18 months, do you think? Or? Well, that had to be a salesperson you talked about. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, I think, and I'm not privy to where GE Aviation in particular um, is today on how many different parts they have in the works, but. I, I know enough to know that they have uh, they are doing some phenomenal things. There is absolutely no question about it. Uh, it usually takes a good couple years before uh, anybody gets permission to publicly talk about what they're doing. That's GE and other companies. They you know a lot of that's usually kept um, under wraps until it gets to a, a certain point of maturity within the organization. So I, I do believe there probably are many parts that are going to make their way eventually into future engines. Um, so, uh, but you have to keep in mind that for, for a GE, their engines, uh, their, their primary set of engines are, are the larger engines. They're not the catalyst size engines. So uh, that, that dictates you'll need bigger parts and typically and, and that kind of thing. But look, overall, I, my opinion is I think, uh, I think that in the next five to 10 years, we will see uh, a substantial number of applications in polymers and metals, ceramics, and a whole bunch of different materials and modalities starting to make their way uh, to conferences where people start talking about them more. Um, it's just, it, it, it's on its way. There's a lot of things going on. 
Um, Ellie, I'm sure can can you know back that up with regard to their modality, which is a, a great modality for uh, uh, applications that may not have those say high cycle fatigue or low cycle fatigue. It's you know they're going to have they're going to have huge penetration in binder jet in a lot of different areas, and and there's going to be a lot of penetration in laser based and EB based and other applications and repair technologies we haven't even touched on. It's another huge one for direct energy deposition. Um, radiated materials will open up whole new realms of things. So I, I think it's, I think we're, we're getting to that tipping point. I think there's enough, still a long way to go, but enough engineers and designers that are getting how that design for additive has, has to happen. A uh, ton of companies out there offering the services and the capability. A lot of people more mature and they're thinking about the processes and and, um, and the quality system. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's not two years. I think it's probably, my guess is it's a little longer horizon, but uh, I, I think that wave of stuff is coming soon. And what about yourself, Ellie, from the desktop metal perspective, what kind of uh, tech applications are you seeing come in and what do you expect for the next five years? Yeah, well, so uh, may I speak a little bit more, yeah. more, uh, more broadly to, uh, so, so you, you often hear uh, the word revolutionary uh, associated with, uh, with this field. And I, I think that has to be weighed against uh, uh, the kind of thing that I mentioned earlier, that the barriers to entry in manufacturing are very high, uh, but once you're in, you're in uh, for, for potentially a very long time. And uh, so uh, the word revolution is probably just not in appropriate uh, in, in the lexicon. It's probably more, more like evolution. And, uh, and I, I think of 3D printing as punctuated evolution. So you know, evolution uh, proceeds slowly, but apparently there have been times when it proceeds very rapidly. But even when that's proceeding very rapidly, if you're living through it, it doesn't necessarily look very rapid, right? And so I think, I think that's part of where, where the mismatch comes. So you can look back, as, as you said, uh, and, and say, I've, I've heard sort of similar things for a number of years now. Uh, 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 what's going on? Why isn't it coming to fruition? But if, if you could go forward 50 years, which in manufacturing is, is nothing, actually, and look back, you would look back at, at, at these, uh, uh, let's say these 20 years that we're in the middle of now uh, as one of those punctuated evolution stages. So it would look very rapid indeed in perspective. We have a, a couple of minutes remaining and we've probably got time for a couple of questions from the floor. So I'd like to open up to the floor. We do have a microphone, uh, Magda has got a microphone. So if you have a question for any of the two gentlemen, please uh, put your hand up. Any questions? <laughs> You're not going to get this opportunity again. <laughs> okay, well, thanks very much for your time today, gentlemen. It's been, uh, it's been really interesting. Thanks for the talk. Congratulations on being in, nominated into the TCT Hall of Fame. And I will see you this evening at the TCT Awards. Thanks very much, Greg. Thank you. Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks.